0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing today? Tulsi Gadward had a CNN town hall last night. Um, If you follow me on Twitter, you're well aware that uh, I was not very pleased with the results, with the reaction, with um, how CNN chose to approach it. I mean, we could have seen it coming from a mile away because this is exactly what they did with Bernie Sanders. But, I mean, I guess when when you notice the stark contrast between what Tulsi was saying or how Tulsi was treated and how the other candidates were treated, um, it's just depressing. It's massively depressing. So I think I'm going to lead with that story. There's a lot to say about that. I don't have any clips for you on that one because it happened, uh, you know, late last night, and I just kind of want to riff on it more than anything. So that's uh, – That'll be the first story. I also have Howard Schitts gave an interview. and It was basically one of the dumbest uh, interviews I've ever seen in my life. He was at South by Southwest, and uh, he was saying that he, of course, is the best candidate to beat Donald Trump,
1: <laughs> which
0: is hilarious. And he did his normal uh, tap dance of, the reason I'm running is because... We can't do anything that everybody wants to do. No Green New Deal, no Medicare for All, no free college. How can we do any of that? Let's not be ridiculous people. So, um, yeah, there's a lot to say about that story. Um, If you're wondering why it took me a while to hop on air, it's because, of course, there's been more technical problems, and it's a pain in the fucking ass to fix Um, We also have Julian Castro, who's polling at a whopping, like, 1%. He decided to take his shiv out and go after Bernie Sanders in the hackiest of hacky ways, making the shittiest of shitty arguments. Um, So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about what happened with uh, Chelsea Manning. What happened with Chelsea Manning is absolutely devastating, and um, there's no justice. There's no justice because we have heroes who are locked up, and we have the worst criminals in the world who are not only still free, but are basically back to their old tricks. Of course, I'm talking about Wall Street. Um, So, yeah, there's just a lot to talk about today. I'll hop into it in one second. I'm actually trying to fix a technical problem live on air as I talk to you. Um, And it is not working. (laughs) It is not working well at all. Eh? Is that better?
2: Whatever. I think
0: I'm just going to have to go with the incredibly dim dim lighting. That's going to have to be what happens here which I'm not happy about, but you can't fix it live, you can't fix it, you know? What are you going to do? Okay, that saying made no sense, but nonetheless. <laughs> All right, dim lighting it is. Oh, shit.
3: Uh, sorry, guys, this is a pain in the
0: ass. Alright, whatever. Fuck it. We'll do it live! Fuck it! How many of you remember that? I'm sure most of you remember that. Bill O'Reilly, when he flipped out live on air. We'll do it live! Fuck it! I'll write it. I'll write it and we'll do it live. Yeah, I'm dim as a motherfucker. Alright, whatever. What are you gonna do? I mean, I guess I could try to fix it when I play one of the videos, but I'm not sure any of them are that long. You know, I I would, like, pause and try to fix this... But I honestly don't know if, I, if it's a bowl without, like, a hard reset or something like that. So, yeah, whatever. Alright, well, this is terrible. Anyway, I'm like... It looks like there's no lights on me, basically. I look like Phantom of, of the Opera. I'm so fucking dark here. But if any of you are wondering why I'm, like, frantically trying to fix stuff... For whatever reason, um, this the settings have gone haywire in the camera... And every time we go on air, it kind of like either is massively, massively bright or massively dim. And then it's like, all right, well, how do I fix this live on air scrambling? And the answer is you can't really do it. So, yeah, it is what it is. Um, all right. Here we go. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Tulsi Gabbard. So CNN had uh, Tulsi Gabbard Town Hall at South by Southwest last night. And it was a pathetic display. I mean, just really, really pathetic. Not pathetic because of Tulsi Gabbard. I think she did a fine job. um, But pathetic because of the questions, how it was structured, what they were trying to do. Now, Tulsi Gabbard was the middle act. uh, And there was a town hall right before... 1980s sitcom soccer dad, John Delaney, is a guy who apparently is running for president, who I knew nothing about until yesterday. I only caught like two minutes of his town hall. Um, from what I've been told from others, he's he's a snooze fest. Uh, and then after Tulsi Gabbard, you had Pete uh, Booty Judge, who is a judger of booties. And he is actually, he's not a terrible candidate. I mean, he's basically... He kind of bases his um, political career, to one extent or another, off of Bernie Sanders. He wrote um, this this long thing, I think, in college that was basically an ode to Bernie Sanders. Now, his policies today, judging based off of what he was saying at the town hall, he's not as left as Bernie Sanders, but at least he's somewhat of a refreshing voice on many issues. Um, but he's also, he, he's really young, not that that's a disqualifier, because Tulsi's young as well. But he also strikes me as very, um, his political approach in terms of how he presents himself is very old school. It's very 1990s. It's very when he talks, it's not to the point. It's kind of long and drawn out, and he and he seems like he's coached. Um, but we'll put aside uh, Booty Judge and and John Delaney, the the sitcom dad, for a little bit here, and let's just talk about what happened with Tulsi. So. Um, I would show you some clips, but we're not going to get into it. There's like eight different clips that I could uh, have focused on and done separate segments on, but I just want to talk about the overall thing that happened. So strike number one on CNN is this. They hid the identities of the Democratic operatives again. Now, they did this to Bernie. They would say, oh, a teacher from Idaho is going to ask a question here. And then you would find out very quickly that's not a teacher from Idaho. That's, you know, somebody who works with some establishment Democratic think tank, and they were sent there to do their bullshit hack questions to try to kneecap Bernie Sanders. Um, And they didn't disclose it. That's the most important thing. I mean, it's okay to ask tough questions, but a lot of these questions were hacky. But even if they were fair questions, you're not disclosing who's asking the question and what potential conflicts of interest they have and if they're probably fucking sent from the DNC or whatever it may be. So that was strike number one, is that Tulsi had a lot of those plans. She had a lot of those people who were Democratic operatives who were out there to try to kneecap her and to try to uh, put her in a corner and to try to misleadingly frame questions to make her step in it no matter what her answer is. So that was strike number one, and it's clear that there was some fuckery afoot. Um, then after that, listen, here were – I want to give you the first 21 minutes. I look at the clock. The first 21 minutes, at least. It was probably even longer than that. There was not a single – Substantive question. So I, I jotted them down. The first one was, how can you be against war when you were in the military? And it was worded differently, but that was, the, that was the gist of it. Like, wait, you were in the military and you don't want to be bombing 42 countries offensively, illegally? Like, that was the first question. Infuriating. Um, then, of course, we get to, I think it was the second question, um, you know, something about Assad, and then uh, Dana Bash, who's the CNN host, wakes up and, and basically says to her like, "Okay, will you condemn him tonight here? Will you call him a war criminal? Will you say bad things about the official state baddie, please? I don't understand why you're not doing that. Can you please do that more? You should do that more." So we went from how can you be against war to condemn our official state enemies. Then we go to a question in the audience, and it's on Medicare for all but it's not a a reasonable question on Medicare for All, because there's a million reasonable questions on Medicare for All. The question is, um, you know, basically, wouldn't Medicare for All cost, like, way too many jobs? So every single question is framed from a pro-establishment right-wing perspective, every single one to this point. Then we get to, um, isn't Ilhan Omar an anti-Semite? Will you please condemn Ilhan Omar? Uh, And then, then we get to about 10 minutes, and that might not be an exaggeration, of uh, digging into her religion. So we get we go from, how can you be against war, condemn Assad, isn't he so evil, wouldn't Medicare for all cost jobs, isn't Ilhan Omar an anti-Semite, and then 10 minutes in, it's or, or for, for 10 minutes, it's uh, tell us about how you're Hindu, uh, let me ask you a thousand questions, uh, there was a question about her anti-gay past, which is a fine question, but she's gotten more shit for her anti-gay past and her voting record, by the way, is 100% pro-gay, because by the time she was a lawmaker, she was already uh, on the side of of the gay community, but she was asked more questions about her anti-gay past when she has a solid voting record than Hillary Clinton ever was about her anti-gay past, and she didn't have a uh, 100% pro-gay voting record the further back you go. So, it was a hit job. That's what it was. It was a hit job. Now, some people are saying, oh, well, she did a good job sending off the questions. That's that's somewhat true, but it's – these are set up so you can't win. Like, the way they set this up is that so she can't win. And my concern is, while she does have very thoughtful answers, my concern is with Tulsi that there's a lot – it takes her a while to get her point out. Because she's not, you know – Take me, for example. I do this shit for a living. Now, I know how to fucking just go, and I could talk, and I could fill a long time slot. But when you're put in a position where you're debating, you're put in a position where you're on the spot, you have to change gears. And the gear has to become, if, if you're presented with something that's like preposterous in the framing of it, you have to be able to, in a very quick sound bite, slap it down and reframe it. And my concern with Tulsi is that She gets these hacky questions, okay? These pro-establishment, pro-right-wing framed questions. And then she gives like a four or five-minute thoughtful response, which is an adequate response. But most Americans nowadays have the attention span of a gnat. And they're going to, after like 35 seconds, they're like, oh, what's going on over here? Change the channel. Uh, Let me get my hot pocket out of the microwave. And a thousand other things that are going through their minds. So... Uh, listen, th- that's just my take on it. Some of you may disagree. I think she did a great job in terms of if you actually look at her answers and you're listening to her answers and you see how she handled herself when she was painted into a corner a million times over. Um, but uh, if I was advising her, that's what my advice would be to her. You got to sharpen. You got to sharpen. You got to you got to come quicker with the fucking punch right through responses that slap it down or reframe it and get you a pop from the audience. And that's how you know you've succeeded. If you could slap down a dumb question, quickly reframe it, and then get, and then the audience pops and they go, oh, shit, that was a great answer. So, you know, and, but it's not easy. That's the thing. It's not easy to do this. That's, that's actually very difficult for many people is on the spot to, to, to flip it, reframe it, and get the audience to, like, totally get it and go along with you in the short soundbite. It's tough, but listen... I told you, and I tweeted this a long time ago, and it was one of the tweets where I think I may have said in the tweet, like, save this, I guarantee you it's going to come true, and it is. I said, the media is going to go with kid gloves on every Democratic uh, primary candidate except, except Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, and even Elizabeth Warren. Because even though you and I know, hey, Elizabeth Warren, you know she's good, but she's got one foot in the establishment camp, one foot in the the progressive camp, mainstream media doesn't view her that way. They view her almost exactly like Bernie Sanders. They think she's like female Bernie Sanders. So um, those are the three who are going to get shit. Now some of you might say, oh, what about Andrew Yang? Well, they're just not going to talk about Andrew Yang. (laughs) So it's one thing, you know, Bernie and Tulsi and Elizabeth Warren will get nothing but negative coverage. Uh, They won't even bother to mention Andrew Yang. But if, if, they, if he ever were to become viable enough where they would talk about him, then they would also include him in the category of just you know, sh- on him all day long, ask misleading questions. And by the way, the setup is this. The way CNN asked the questions and, and the, how long and thoughtful Tulsi's answers were, I saw the headlines immediately after you know, the, the um, town hall where they were like, Tulsi Gabbard refuses to call Assad a war criminal. So, again, it's all in the framing. They did the misleading framing of the questions. No matter how Tulsi answers, it's not going to be satisfactory to them. And then, boom, they get to run with the headlines of, oh, my goodness, Tulsi Gabbard, she refused to call uh, Assad a war criminal. And it's the gotcha-ism. That's what it is. It's all gotcha-ism, and they're trying to take her campaign because she's actually going to change some stuff up. And um, it's disgusting is what it is And uh, for people who don't see through it. And, and, you know, as I'm watching this, I'm going, people wonder why – CNN blows, and they get terrible ratings, because it's not just the right. I mean, they would love to have you believe that only the far right thinks CNN is fake news, but that's not true. The left also thinks it because because of things like what happened last night, and they're not wrong. They're not wrong. Everything is from a pro-establishment framing, and um, people, people get it twisted oftentimes. They say, oh, the media has a liberal bias. The media only has a liberal. The media has a corporate bias, pro corporate bias. So that manifests as on social issues, yes, they have a liberal bias. So they don't hate gay people, they don't hate minorities, they don't hate black people. That is true. Corporate media is not socially conservative um, because corporations know that those people are customers too. So on social issues, yes, they have a liberal bias. On economic issues, they are massively. Massively pro-status quo, which is why you have the most bullshit questions on Medicare for All, for example, on free college, come from corporate media, come from CNN, come from MSNBC, come from the nightly news uh, channels, because they are not in favor of shaking up the system. Uh, and there's a lot of money in the way the system functions now, and they don't want big change. So it's, it's a misnomer to say, all oh, the media has a liberal bias. On social issues, sure, I'll give you that. But really, ultimately, it's a pro-corporate bias, and that means that on economics, they're actually massively conservative. And you can see it because they go after candidates like Bernie, they go after candidates like Tulsi. Now, in the case of uh, Bernie, we're, you know, we're so used to it with Bernie, and I've spoken about this before. Ultimately, I think it will help Bernie. Ultimately, I think the media is like really hacky attacks against Bernie Sanders. I think they will help Bernie in the same way that when they just nonstop day and night shitting on Trump, oftentimes using bad arguments, that helped Trump. Uh, In the case of Tulsi, I'm not sure if it will ultimately help her. I'm not sure because it certainly strikes me like um, to your average to your average political person, some of the stuff against Tulsi sticks because it's so relentless and people aren't as well-versed in the nuances of the issues. And um, I'm not sure if ultimately the media being totally against Tulsi is going to help Tulsi in the same way that I, I'm convinced the media being so against Bernie is going to help Bernie. Um, now, we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe this like, uh, obvious onslaught against t- Tulsi helps her. Maybe it is. But in the case of Bernie, he already has so much name recognition whereas Tulsi doesn't have nearly as much name recognition as Bernie. But Bernie has so much name recognition, and people already know exactly what he's about, that you can't, no matter how much you try to trip him up and do gotcha-ism and say, oh, you flew a plane and you say you care about climate change, it's not going to work. It's going to help Bernie, if anything. With Tulsi, I'm not sure if the media being against her is going to help her. Um, But either way, I think it was a grotesque display from CNN I think that Tulsi did as good of a job as she could have possibly done on the fly. And she, she, what, what she is really good at is staying calm as she's being, like, grossly smeared and everything is framed in an impossibly stupid way. She's really great at that. I would just tell her if I was advising her, you have to sharpen up your answers. you got to be shorter, you got to be punchier, you got to be to the point more. Uh, and the best example of that was on Ilhan Omar. She was asked, you know, hey, is she anti-Semitic? And, or, would, or were her comments anti-Semitic, and her answer was way too political for me. I mean, I know she feels like she has to balance interests and she can't just come out and say, no, it was a coordinated smear campaign, but that's the answer. The answer is it was a coordinated smear campaign. Her comments were obviously against money in politics and against AIPAC buying our politicians to get pro-Israeli legislation through, and that's the correct answer. The correct answer is, no, she's not an anti-Semite. This has been a coordinated smear campaign, and the way she's been treated is disgusting. But you, she didn't answer like that. You know, it was the typical political... And it'd be fair to Tulsi, it's all these politicians who are saying the same thing. You know, maybe maybe Bernie was the most aggressive in defending Ilhan, but even he wasn't totally, you know, say, oh, it was a smear campaign. So, but, you know, was, her answer was something like, you know, some people were perceiving it as that, but I think her intent was to talk about the issue of foreign policy and and how we act in the world with our allies. And it has to be fair game to talk about how we, what our relationship is with our allies. So she did like a semi-defense, but, you know, I'm always a fan of, and this is the last thing that idiot strategists will tell you to do in in Washington, D.C. I'm always a fan of the direct answer. Yeah, sure. They'll tell you if you get, you know, faced with a question, and hey, the question is worded strangely, that you can basically turn to Muhammad Ali and dance around it and then somehow get away unscathed. Uh, I'm actually, uh, I, think, I think that people are smarter than those strategies give them credit for, and people know immediately when you're dancing around a question. Like you, they think they're getting away with it, they're not getting away with it. Everybody sees, like, oh, you're dancing around it. I see that. Whereas they think, like, oh no, they're getting away with it. See, they're dancing. No, that's no, that's not. It's not like people aren't aware of what you're doing. So I'm always a fan of just give the answer up front, and then you can say whatever you want to say. So uh, were Ilhan Omar's comments anti-Semitic? No. Now here's why. And I think that's one of the reasons why people like Bernie is because Bernie always does that. He's always like, no, uh, wrong. Uh, you know, here's, here's what I actually think about it. But he'll tell you up front, and then he'll go. He won't start with, like, you know, be a Neil from The Matrix and dodging, like, oh. But anyway, um, CNN did a horrendous display, and uh, they should be embarrassed. All right, now let me pull up a video for Howard Schitt. so Howard Schitts gave an interview at the South by Southwest conference and I want to show you my favorite parts
4: Day after you announced, yeah, Nate Silver's team at 538 did a podcast. And they opened the podcast with someone saying, Everyone says Howard Schultz has a zero percent chance. I don't believe that. He might have a one percent chance. Oh,
2: one percent. Those are really those are really, really yeah.
4: long odds.
2: How many entrepreneurs are in the room today and people told you your ideas, your dream could not come true? How many? <laughs> okay. okay. I I am with you. I am with you because we live in America where anything is possible. We live in America where our dreams can come true. So don't let anyone tell you your dreams can't come true. No one. And and I'm not going to allow the pundits, the cynics to tell me that what I believe needs to happen in America is not possible. This is a critical, critical moment for all of us. And I'm going to do my best to stand up and represent what I believe is a vast majority of the American people who no longer have a voice. And I'm going to try and give them a voice. And let's see what happens. So... That's great. Do
4: you, do you, um, I imagine your family is behind you. I imagine your friends are behind you. I imagine you have a lot of people who tell you that what you are doing is is good and noble. Do you have people in your life who come to you and tell you, Howard, rethink this. You're embarrassing yourself. Step down. Don't don't do this to the country right now. Are there are there are there those people around you? Or is everybody gung ho? Right
2: no. I, I think when you try and do something that uh, has not been done before, that this has this steep of a climb and is against the grain, uh, certainly you're going to have a group of people that believe this is. Not the thing to do, or not something uh, that could turn out well. Uh, but I, I, this is where I believe I need to be. This is where my life has led me. Uh, I've had the same group of friends for the past 30, 40 years. Uh, some of whom have been traveling with me over the last couple of weeks. Uh, my wife has been with me all the way through. Uh, we know how hard this is. We know how difficult it is. But most importantly. We know how critical this is at this moment in the history of our country.
0: Yeah, now I have red behind me randomly. <laughs> this, uh, this helps. It was so dim in here, and I think the red light actually helps it a little bit and makes it look a little brighter. But anyway, um, random side note. That was embarrassing. So what he needs to understand is this. Dude, it's not like, who, me? I'm just a brave man going against the grain, and me and my family are in this for the long haul. You know, nothing easy, nothing that was worth it was ever easy. He's given, like, all these platitudes about how, oh, you can do it if you fight on. And my answer to him is, it's not, that's not the issue. The issue is that what you're doing is stupid. Okay, now he was laughing at the beginning, like, oh, he gave me all of a 1% chance. So most people give Howard Schultz a 0% chance, and Nate Silver said, well, maybe he has like a 1% chance. And he thought like that was insulting. Actually, no, dude. The fact that they even bothered to say 1%, you should be doing fucking cartwheels. Because here's the reality. You do have a 0% chance of winning. How do I know that? Well, first of all, your approval rating is 4%. Now, theoretically, is it possible that you drive that all the way up and then win the election? I was, I was going to say yes, but no, it's not. It's not possible to get from... 4% all the way up to what you would need to win. But more importantly is the structural issue. And, you know, hey, listen, I've had these debates with people on the left who have been screaming, oh my God, let's not take over the Democratic Party. We have, we have to run with a new party or we have to run with ind- as an in independent. And uh, I've said it, you cannot win the presidency in the United States of America as an independent. You just can't do it. You can't do it. The last, Somewhat independent candidate we had, who won, was George Washington. In the modern era, what's the best an independent candidate has ever done? Ross Perot got 19% of the vote. It's a lot, right? You know how many electoral uh, college votes he got? Zero. It's not, it has nothing to do with an individual. Even if Bernie ran as an independent, he wouldn't be able to win. It's the structure of the system. The structure of our political system makes it impossible for an independent presidential candidate to win in the modern era. It is simply not possible. Now, him and his fucking crack team of researchers have apparently come to the opposite conclusion because they don't know what the fuck they're talking about, and chances are this guy's surrounded by overpaid strategists who are just telling him whatever the fuck he wants to hear, and they're stroking his ego and saying, oh, yes, sir, you're definitely going to be competitive in this race. Oh, yes, sir, you're definitely going to get far. Oh, yes, sir. You should keep running. It's a wonderful idea. Oh, yes, sir. Cut my next check, please. I can't wait to get it. The reality is, it's going nowhere. And the thing that pissed me off most here was the framing at the beginning when he was asked that question. Because he said, how many people in here are entrepreneurs? Don't let anybody ever tell you your idea or your dream can't come true. That tells me he's in this for all the wrong reasons. What do you mean, your idea or your dream? You know, this is his dream, Howard Schultz's dream. My dream is to win the presidency. Nobody gives a fuck about your dream, dog. The difference between you and Bernie Sanders is that you are running because it's your dream to be president. Bernie Sanders is running because he has a dream for the people. He has a vision for the people. It ain't about him. Do you think Bernie Sanders really wants to be doing this? Do you think that a guy who's 77 years old and he's on the campaign trail and he's flying everywhere around this country and giving a rally virtually every single day, you think a 77-year-old man wants to be running around the country trying to get elected president? You think in his heart of hearts he wants to do that? He's doing it because he feels like it's absolutely necessary because this country is so far behind where we should be, and he wants to catch us up to the rest of the developed world. He wants to get all of the common-sense things implemented. Every other developed nation has... Uh, one version or another of single-payer healthcare. He's running because he's like, God damn it, that's so stupid, and I think I'm the only one that could actually succeed in getting into law. So it, Howard Schultz is a narcissist. He is a malignant narcissist. He cannot break out of his childish fantasy where he views this all from a selfish perspective, and that's what's so frustrating about him is that it it drips off of everything he ever said. And by the way, most of this town hall that he did at South by Southwest was him telling everybody what they can't have. I was halfway through his town hall. He didn't mention a single actual policy he supports. Not a single one. It was all, we can't have the Green New Deal. We can't have Medicare for all. We can't have free college. Here's why we can't do all these bold things. I'm here to be realistic with you. It reminds me of a tweet that went viral uh, where I think it was Internet Hippo. He said, just got back from the centrist rally where we all held hands and said, better things aren't possible. That's Howard, Howard Schitz in a nutshell. That's his whole thing, man. That's everything he's been saying, everything he's been doing. The overwhelming majority of all of his comments since he said he was going to run have been, here's what we can't do, not here's what we can do. And, you know, he does this weird thing where it's like, he acts like me? I'm I'm an anti-establishment outsider. And then he goes on to give all the arguments of the establishment. It's the biggest facade charade I've ever seen. A dude who fancies himself anti-establishment, but ultimately he's socially liberal and fiscally conservative, which is basically the establishment. That's exactly what they are. Don't change the status quo too much because there's a lot of money being made in this status quo. Um, don't try new big ideas. But, okay, I don't hate gay people. I don't hate black people, and I'm not, you know, an open bigot. Wow. <laughs> but he's, he's for the logic of the establishment, as he pretends like, me, bro, I'm just I'm just an independent outsider. Don't you want to send an independent-minded person to Washington and shake things up? The problem, Howard, is not that, you know oh, my God, Washington, D.C. has no bipartisanship. The problem is that they have too much bipartisanship, and 90% of the time when Democrats and Republicans in Washington, D.C. agree it's to screw the people over and do the bidding of their donors. Oh, he's a joke, uh, and he's insanely selfish. And um, final point is this. He either knows his campaign is going nowhere. He either knows that. And he's miserable behind closed doors. Miserable. Or, or, um, he doesn't know his campaign is going nowhere, and he's the most delusional motherfucker on the entire planet. And he thinks, like, no, actually, seriously, I I could do this. Which is a level of delusion that honestly makes him a, a dumb person. Like, he's not intelligent. He's not intelligent if he thinks, like, no, 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 I could do this. You can't do it. Not even close. You know, you're, you're at Mount Everest base camp right now, and you have no clothes, you're naked, and you have no oxygen tank, and you think you're going to get to the summit? You'll be dead before you reach Camp 1, bitch. <laughs> it ain't happening. Get over it. All right, next. We're going to talk about Julian Castro in a second. By the way, I think I figured out what the lighting problem was. I think it was the, um, it was one of the actual studio lights for whatever reason. It was like dimmed and then randomly kicked on during the show. That was very strange. That was very strange. All right, let let me see if something happened here with the plug. I don't know. Okay, sorry about that, guys. It looks like the problem is somewhat taken care of. The red light behind me helps. Oh, okay. If you haven't heard about this story yet, you're going to get a kick out of it. You're going to get a real kick out of it. Because it is disgusting. Julian Castro is apparently the worst. Nobody knew that until today. Let me set this up. All right. Julian Castro, who is running for president right now, which is kind of hilarious in and of itself, um, he's currently polling at like 1%. He decided he's going to take out his shiv and go for Bernie Sanders because um, he's polling at 1% and he's either tanking his campaign and doing the bidding of the establishment for some payoff later. Like, oh, if you're the attack dog against Bernie, then when Kamala, when they'll probably think somebody like Kamala will win, when Kamala wins, okay, you'll, become, you'll get a top position in the administration. So he's either tanking his campaign to do the bidding of the establishment for some payoff later, or he's just desperate and he thinks like, oh, if I go negative and I attack Bernie, that this will somehow help me and I'll end up, uh, you know, rising in the polls, which is not going to happen because he's embarrassing. Well, anyway, he went after Bernie on the issue of reparations. Take a look.
4: Um, Take a listen to Bernie Sanders, uh, one of your campaign rivals at a CNN town hall, when it was pointed out that you and Elizabeth Warren support some form of reparations.
3: What do they mean? I'm
1: not sure that anyone's very clear. What I just said
3: is that I think... We must do everything that we can to address the massive level of disparity that exists in this country. So
4: what do you mean? Do you think that there should be actual monetary payments to descendants of slaves? Do you support uh, more like what Senator Sanders is talking about, policies such as child care and education that help those who are disadvantaged?
5: Uh, well, you know, what I said was that, uh, that I've long believed that Uh, This country should address uh, slavery, the original sin of slavery, including by looking at reparations. And if I'm president, then I'm going to appoint a commissioner task force to determine the best way to do that. There's a tremendous amount of disagreement on how we would do that. But let me just say something about Senator Sanders' response there. Because um, he was also asked this question in 2016, mm-hmm. what he said on the View, I think, the other day was that he didn't think the best way to address this was for the United States to write a check. To my mind, that may or may not be the best way to address it. However, it's interesting to me that when it comes to uh, Medicare for all, healthcare, you know, <laughs> the response there has been we need to write a big check. That when it comes to uh, tuition-free or debt-free college, the answer has been we need to write a big check. And so if the issue is compensating the descendants of slaves, I don't think that the argument about um, writing a big check uh, ought to be the argument that you make if you're making an argument that a big check needs to be written Mm
1: -hmm. for a whole
5: bunch of other stuff. Interesting. Um, So if under the Constitution we compensate people because we take their property Why wouldn't you compensate people who actually were property?
0: Well, first of all, nobody, nobody, nobody who was property is alive today. Nobody. Nobody. So that last point you made is utter hacky bullshit, and really it's a lie. Because my guess is if any actual, actual slaves who were then freed were alive today, pretty sure every Democratic candidate would be like, Do we owe that person reparations? You bet your fucking ass they were property. So that's not the discussion we're having. The discussion we're having is generations later. Do people deserve checks because, you know, going back generations, they had people in their families who were slaves. That's the conversation. So that last point is completely hacky, but put that aside. Okay. Um, Julian Castro is a weasel because he said at the beginning there, he's trying to make people think like me. I support reparations. Look carefully at what he said. He said, quote, including looking at reparations. Looking at. who Me? Listen, I'm I'm more reasonable. I'm more enlightened. I'm leftier than Bernie. I'm leftier than now. Because I, I want to look at reparations. Oh, you want to look at it. That's what you want to look at it. So in other words, I mean study it. I'm not telling you I'm for it. I'm telling you I'm okay with studying it. You know who else is okay with studying it? Bernie Sanders. So that's not... It's all, it's all fucking smoke and mirrors what these guys try to do here. Now, but let's get to the main point. Because he thinks, oh, I got you, Bernie, I got you. You're for writing a check when it comes to health care. You're for writing a check when it comes to college. But you're not for writing a check when it comes to reparations. Why don't you stay true to your logic and just write checks? That's not the argument. The argument isn't anything you can theoretically think of. Let's write a check for it. That's not, Bernie never made that point. You're pretending that he made that point. You could slap it down. It's called a straw man argument. But, okay, Bernie Sanders is for writing a check when it comes to health care. Well, if that's how you're going to be the way you describe single payer, 70% of the American people are in favor of that. 70% of Americans are for universal health care. 58% of Americans are for free college. Massive majorities. What percentage of Americans are for reparations? 32%. So the point you're making is not a point. Huh. Bernie Sanders supports incredibly popular pieces of legislation and doesn't support unpopular pieces of legislation. Got him. No, you didn't. You got yourself. And listen, I got I to say, man, regardless of what you might think of reparations, okay, regardless of that, it's not popular. So if you're a Democratic candidate and you think you're going like to out-left Bernie by running to an incredibly unpopular policy position, that's, you're not helping yourself. You're hurting yourself. Hurting yourself, number one, because you're attacking the frontrunner who's massively popular, and that's only going to hurt you. Hurting yourself, number two, because you're staking a claim by the most unpopular policy position. So it, it's not a gotcha. It's like you're running to a position where most Americans are going to go, I don't agree with you on that. And then you think like, yeah, see? I'm further left. And I've made this point in regards to the death penalty, too. Like, the death penalty in this country, whether we like it or not, is popular. Now, does that mean that if you're in office that you don't do anything to try to stop the death penalty? No. But it does mean you don't fucking run on it. Who does that? I'm going to run on this thing, which is not popular at all, and then maybe that'll help me get elected. No. You're supposed to put your best foot forward when you're running. So if I, would, if I was advising any of these candidates, I would say even if you're not in favor of the death penalty, you don't put that front and center. And again, you could be totally correct on the issue, but if, if everybody's against you on that issue, it's just smart politics to not put that issue front and center and make it like a, the, a centerpiece of your campaign. That's just stupid. That makes no sense. Like you're not going to gain in the polls. You're going to lose in the polls if you do that. People are going to say, I don't agree with that. And even if you make fucking amazing arguments, and somehow you get to move the poll numbers on that, congratulations, you moved reparations, you know, from 32% in the polls to what? What are we, what are we thinking it could top out? Uh, top out at uh, even if you had the best arguments we made for it, 40% in one election cycle, you jump from 32 to 40, still massively unpopular. It's it's just dumb politics. But of course, that's what the Democrats would do. They would embrace dumb politics, and again, they're doing it for the most cynical of reasons, which is. They want to give you the perception, us? Listen, every other candidate on stage here is way more woke and and willing to help the black community than Bernie Sanders. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is utter horseshit. The candidates who have actually said they're for reparations are not even for reparations. They're for uh, baby bonds, and they're for targeted tax credits. So... Just keep that in mind. And in terms of the totality of their agenda and their respective platforms, whose platform is best for communities of color? It's obvious. Do I even need to say it? It's obviously Bernie Sanders. He has the most robust, aggressive, furthest left platform, which helps uh, communities of color. And if he achieves it via universal programs, there's nothing wrong with that. They try to make it seem like, oh, that's not woke enough. Oh, you're only for universal programs? Why don't you pretend like you're for reparations like I do when I try to leave that taste in your mouth? As I say, I'm for looking at it. So, um, listen, like I said at the beginning here, he's either gotten the okay to become an attack dog to get a position in in an administration in the future to to try to take down Bernie Sanders and get paid back for that, or he actually thinks maybe this will help me rise in the polls. And you bet your ass it will not help him rise in the polls, because everybody's all over this character. And for the record, he was the head of housing and urban development under Barack Obama. He massively served Wall Street and hurt communities of color when he was the head of housing and urban Urban development. He's a hack. He's a fraud. And um, he's playing gutter politics here. And everybody needs to know that. All right, let's go to Chelsea Manning. So Chelsea Manning is uh, back in prison. The Guardian says the following. The former U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning has been jailed for refusing to testify to a grand jury investigating WikiLeaks. U.S. District Judge Claude Hilton held Manning in contempt of court and ordered her jailed on Friday after a brief hearing in Alexandria, Virginia, where Manning confirmed she has no intention of testifying. She told the judge she, quote, will accept whatever you bring upon me. Manning says she is refusing to testify because she objects to the secrecy of the grand jury process and already revealed everything she knows at her court-martial. The judge said she will remain jailed until she testifies or until the grand jury concludes its work. Manning turned over a vast trove of military and diplomatic documents to WikiLeaks, an anti-secrecy website which made them public in 2010. She served seven years of a 35-year military sentence and was freed after former President Barack Obama commuted her sentence. WikiLeaks responded, Chelsea Manning jailed for refusing to testify on WikiLeaks and Assange. Whistleblowers are now being forced to testify against journalists and sent to jail when they don't cooperate. A new angle in the attack on media freedom. So what they're trying to do here is get her to say stuff about Julian Assange that they can use to bring down Julian Assange. Apparently, if she says that Julian Assange tried to get her to give up information beforehand, and she didn't go to him, but he almost went to her and said, hey, please give me this stuff beforehand, they can get him on some sort of crime if they do that, if they get her uh, to say that, and... What she's doing is she's saying, first of all, I told you everything I already know, number one. Number two, this is a secret process, and it's a secret process because it's a malicious process, and you don't want transparency in this process because your tactics are wrong. So what she's doing is she's taking a stand on principle and saying, no, I'm not going to throw Julian Assange and WikiLeaks under the bus and therefore take a hatchet to First Amendment freedoms in this country. That's exactly what she's doing, and she's a hero. And by the way... It's not like Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. It's not like Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange are close now. My understanding is they haven't fucking talked since back in the day when she gave all the important information to WikiLeaks. And for the record, you know what she gave, right? We learned because of Chelsea Manning that uh, the U.S. was attacking civilians in Iraq. Was it Iraq? Afghanistan? I think Iraq. And... We killed civilians, we killed journalists, and then you heard the people who did it laughing about it. And when the first responders came, they blew up the first responders too. So just wanton disregard of civilian life. Chelsea Manning saw this. She said, I can't in good conscience just let this slip by. We need to address this. The American people need to know this so that they can stand up and try to stop these illegal offensive wars of aggression. And so she's a hero who stood up and said, I will not let my government do these things which are illegal, which are wrong. And if I'm technically doing something illegal by leaking this information to, uh, to journalists, well, so be it. I'll serve, the, I'll serve the time and I'll do the, I'll, you know, feel the consequences of it because it's important. People need to know about this. If what I'm doing is illegal, it shouldn't be illegal. So fine, lock me up, but I'm, I can sleep at night and my conscience is clear if I do the right thing. Now, everybody, everybody who says they care about the Constitution, who says they care about the First Amendment, who says they care about free speech and a free press, you have to speak out in support of Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange. Because I got news for you. Even if you don't like Julian Assange, even if you think WikiLeaks lost their way and they were too pro-Trump in the last election, even if you think all that's the case, listen to me. This is about precedent. People struggle with this. I don't know why, but people struggle with this point. The idea that This isn't about any one isolated case. First of all, even if it was about one isolated case, you should still be on the side of, this is crazy, they're trying to crack down on Julian Assange and WikiLeaks simply for doing the crime of journalism. But it never stops here, ever. So if the government establishes this logic of, yeah, we get to go after journalists who print stuff that we don't like, well, then they're never going to stop. When there's a right-wing administration, they're going to go after lefties who say stuff and expose stuff they don't want. When it's a left-wing administration, they're going to go after right-wing people who say stuff and expose stuff they don't want. It's, gonna, it's just going to be a free-for-all crackdown on the media. And people are going to be scared straight to only say the things the government is okay with you saying. So that is authoritarianism 101. That's, you cannot... Challenge the status quo and the established narrative. And if you do that, well, we're going to lock you up, or we're going to find a way to come after you and have some bullshit legalese around it. So Chelsea Manning is a hero, and yet again, she's behind bars for her principles. Apparently, uh, she'll be let go either when she says she will testify or at the end of this court proceeding. Um, So I don't know how long that will be, but Chelsea Manning is a hero, and everybody needs to know that. now let's go to Ilhan Omar and then we'll take a break Ilhan Omar did an interview with Politico, and she made some comments that receives backlash yet again. Um, she was talking about Obama. Let's see what she had to say.
6: We think of as I think for, for many of us, are, we, we, we think of ourselves as Democrats, but many of, of the ways that our democratic leaders have Conducted themselves within the system is not one that we are all proud of. Mm-hmm. You know, I I will talk about the the family separation or caging of kids, and, and people will point out that this was Trump. I mean, this was Obama. And, you know, we'll, I'll say something about the droning um, of, of countries around the world, and people will say that was Obama. And all of that is very true. Mm-hmm. Um, what is happening now is very different because a lot of uh, it is happening with the secrecy, feel good, good um, polished way of, of, of talking about it. And, and when we talk about leading people up for complacency, it's to say that we can't be only upset with Trump because he's not uh, a politician who sells us. His policies in the most perfect way. His policies that are bad, but many of the people who came before him also had some bad policies. They just were more polished than he was, and and that's not what we should be looking for anymore. We don't want anybody to um, get away with murder because they are polished. Mm-hmm. We want to recognize. The actual policies that are behind the pre-season smile, so that we can understand the kind of negative impact or constant impact they will have on our sort citizens. Of so how do you?
0: Okay, so the one part about this story that bugs me is that she backpedaled. So she tweeted after this, because all the headlines were like, Ilhan Omar goes after Obama and says like, you know. Policies were similar to Trump, but he had a pretty face that, like, masked it. And um, then she tweeted, like, wrong, I didn't say that. This is why I record all my interviews, because they take things out of context. And then what was the full context is what I just played for you. This is what Ilhan Omar posted. And I have to say, Ilhan, you weren't taken out of context. That was totally – what they said you said is what you said. So the thing that annoys me a little bit is that – There's this reactionary thing that many on the left do, is that when they get attacked by corporate media, they don't know how to double down and be like, I'm right. Instead, they try to be like, no, I didn't say the thing that you said I said, and I did not mean that. In fact, what I was trying to say was Obama was great. That's what she said in her tweet. She's like, oh, I, I actually liked Obama, and that's what I was trying to say, so these are all you know, misleading headlines or whatever. That's not what you said in that clip. You didn't say you liked Obama. But the reaction shouldn't be like, oh, my God, the media is taking me out of context. The reaction should be here, no, that is the context, and I'm right. That's the reaction, Ilhan. That's what you should be saying, because you're right. (laughs) Now, this isn't to say that Obama and Trump are exactly equal, uh, because they're not, and because you also didn't say that. You didn't say they are literally equal. But what you did say is, Hey, listen, there was the caging of kids, and there was the droning of civilians, and that happened under Obama, too. Those things are true. They're true. In fact, remember when that picture, people were tweeting that picture, oh, my God, look at what Trump is doing, and then it turns out that the picture was taken at a detention facility at the border under the Obama administration, and it was a kid in a cage? So, yeah, caging of kids happened under Obama. Now, Trump's policies overall have been even worse at the border, but it is true that kids were in cages under Obama, so that's factually correct. It's also factually correct that there was a lot of droning of civilians happening under Obama. Now, again, Trump has increased drone strikes 432% and is killing way more civilians, but that doesn't excuse it when a Democratic president kills civilians with drones, and it also doesn't excuse it that he set up the infrastructure that was then exploited by Donald Trump. Do you understand that? That's an important point. He set up the infrastructure, and Bush did too, by the way, but George W. Bush and Obama set up that infrastructure, nursed that infrastructure that Trump then came in and, took it uh, to the finish line, okay? He came in, and he was like, okay, well, all this is set up. I'm going to use it, and he did, and, it, you know, he took it even further, so you don't. there's no reason to backpedal. There's no reason to backpedal at all. You could just say, yeah, I said it, and I'm correct, because her overall point was what? We need to care about policy. Don't be misled. If some smooth-talking, polished, feel-good, pretty-faced politician comes out there and he's talking a good game, and then behind the scenes he's doing a lot of the fucked up stuff that we don't like, don't take your eye off the ball and say it's okay when he does it. That's her point, and it's 100% correct. And she can, and she should, double down on that. There's something about corporate media where they lose it whenever Democrats criticize other Democrats from the left. If a Democrat is criticizing another Democrat from the left, corporate media absolutely loses it. So um, what make sense, and what has to happen is, we need to stand our ground. The left needs to stand our ground and say, no, our criticisms are correct. Because if you notice something, there's never any counter-argument. The whole thing is just outrage peddling. Like, oh, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that this thing happened. I, I don't believe it. A thing happened. Do you see what they said? They said something. I can't believe that somebody on the left said something. Like, that's the whole like, feeling of what happens when corporate media goes after the left. But there's never, like, a, and here is a point-by-point rebuttal of why what you said is wrong factually. They never do that, because they can't do that. So, uh, we need to stand our ground, and we need to go on the offense, and then when people try to get us with some gotcha bullshit, just be like, no, you didn't get me, I'm correct. So, keep going, Ilhan. Um, You're right, and they're going to keep trying to smear you, but just Get used to fighting back and standing your ground because your voice is a lot more powerful than theirs. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, we got AOC was at South by Southwest. Pete Booty Jig, I got a clip from him, and then I got uh, Janine Pirro on Fox News who went after Ilhan Omar in the grossest way possible. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
7: Hi, mofos
0: we are back Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is next let's do it so AOC was asked about uh, centrism at South by Southwest the I don't know what you call it conference, festival gathering, whatever the fuck it is um, she did not hold back even a little bit check it out
6: it's like this like it feels like moderate is not a stance it's just an attitude toward life of like
0: Yeah, that was uh that was well put and I never thought of it like that, but it's true. There is something about cynicism and naysaying that's um inherently edgy. Because it's like, "Oh, bro, we can't make anything better." We're like hopeless at trying to make anything better because everything sucks so much. So it's just going to keep sucking. And that that dichotomy by default, sets you uh, as an outsider if you're just kind of like, fuck it all, bro. So I think that's a good point. Um, I would add to it that if you're a moderate in Washington, D.C., if you're a centrist in Washington, D.C., ultimately what you are is a status quo defender. So that's that's the big point, because when people talk about moderates or centrists, in the context of, you know, in mainstream media or among politicians, really what that means is they think the midpoint between the elected Democrats and the elected Republicans is the correct point, is, is the position that is most logical. When in reality, it's the position that's the most lazy. Because what it does is it presupposes, it assumes that you have two equal and equally reasonable and opposite viewpoints and if you just find the midpoint between those two well then everything will function better I've never seen a more intellectually lazy position because it saves you from having to do all the actual hard work to learn what the Democrats in Washington DC and the Republicans in Washington DC stand for and if you do that hard work you'll find that like 99% of the time the Republican Party in Washington DC is screwing over working people and like 70% of the time. The Democratic Party in Washington, D.C. is screwing over working people. So in reality, to find the midpoint between insanely shitty and really shitty is still incredibly shitty. So what you really want to do is kind of remove yourself from that cesspool of corruption and bribery and injustice and see what's happening among regular people. And I think that, you know, this ship may have sailed a long time ago because centrism is just so uncool now because everybody recognizes it as being what I just described, like the lazy midpoint between two corrupt parties in Washington, D.C. But in a weird way, and Pramila Jayapal tried to do this a little while ago, in a weird way, the left should reclaim the mantle of true moderation and true centrism, because one of the definitions of centrism, or or one of the definitions of being a moderate, is being, you know, right smack dab in the middle of mainstream opinion. And mainstream opinion is overwhelmingly left-wing, is overwhelmingly on our side. So, I mean, by one definition, we are the true centrists. We are the true moderates. Because if you're for Medicare for All, well, 70% of the country is for Medicare for All. You're a moderate. You're a centrist. If you're for uh, free college, 58% of the country is for free college. You're a moderate. You're a centrist you're for a living wage, well, 80% of Americans want to raise the minimum wage. You're moderate. You're centrist. If you're for ending the wars, only 17% of Americans still want to be in Afghanistan. You're moderate. You're centrist. On the one hand, the ship has sailed with the, the centrists in D.C. being a laughingstock. But also, by one definition of centrism and, and moderation, we are that. So it depends how you want to look at it. But Obviously, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez here is going after, you know, the Howard Schultz-type moderates. The I'm in the establishment bubble, and I'm a moderate from within this bubble where I don't think everything is all that bad as it's currently running. That's who she's going after. And for them, it's all about, hey, we can't get anything done. Fucking accept it. (laughs) Like, that's his whole thing, is like... um, we can't do Green New Deal, we can't do Medicare for All, we can't think big, we can't have a bold vision, maybe we can do some tweaks around the edges, but that's it and shut the fuck up. That's his whole philosophy. That's his whole philosophy in a nutshell. And um, it's being accurately called out here as, eh, like that's his approach. Like, oh my God, we have climate change and we need to fix it immediately and let's do it while we do an infrastructure project and let's give millions of people jobs. He's like, eh. Again, it reminds me of this Internet Hippo tweet, which is so wonderful. It was like, I just came back from the centrist rally where we all held hands and said, better things aren't possible. That's really what it is. That's, that's what it is, the Howard Schultz-type centrist. So, um, yeah, just so everybody knows, back when uh, FDR was trying to do the Green New Deal, or, excuse me, FDR was trying to do the New Deal, now we're trying to do the Green New Deal. But back when he was trying to do the New Deal, there were endless naysayers, Oh, my God, this will cost so much money, and we're in a depression, and this is unworkable, and oh, how stupid is it? But that, like, every argument that they used against it was actually a powerful argument for it. Yes, we're in a depression. We have to do something. <laughs> yes, people are out of work. We've got to give them work. Yes, we need to rebuild this country. Yes. And all the same arguments were used. Oh, my God, it's going to cost too much. Oh, my God, we can't afford it. Oh, my God, it's too bold. Oh, my God, it goes too far. Rinse and repeat every generation. The conservatives will, you know, naysay every step of the way, and we just need to fight it. And then eventually at some point in the future they go, oh, yeah, no, I was obviously for that too. We all agreed that the New Deal was a good idea, and we were for it. This is what they tried to do with MLK's legacy. Oh, hey, MLK? I mean, yeah, totally. We've fought him every step of the way. But now I, I agree with him, and he would have been he'd be a Republican today or something. It's unbelievable. But anyway, those comments were funny, and I enjoyed, I enjoyed them. Okay. Now, we're going to go to Pete Booty Jig in a second. But first, I am going to have to blow my nose. <laughs> Oh, this is always good. Had a lot of distractions on today's show, haven't we? I'm taking you all for a walk where we can get some tissues. No longer in the studio. Now we're in the office. Okay. I basically, for this show, I've become a Twitch person. That's what it's like. That's what it feels like, at least. I am now a Twitch person. I'm taking you, like, every step of the day and what's going on. I got to say, man, that's got to be harder than being a YouTuber because it really is true. They just fucking, they're just streaming for, like, six hours a day or some crazy shit, you know? Okay, anyway, everybody uh, cover your ears if you don't want to hear some grossness. Okay, that wasn't too bad. You know, I'm still, you know, it started, what, two shows ago is when I was sick, and I'm pretty sure I, like, just now got, am getting over it. Like, I still woke up this morning and uh, was congested to an extent, but it's getting better and better every day. Well, I have to say, this was one of the longest, um, like, colds I think I've ever had, which is kind of crazy because I'm no spring chicken. 31 years old, bitch. All right, now we go to Pete um, Booty Judge. Play a little clip for you. So Pete Booty Judge is a young Indiana mayor. He's running for president. Um, we haven't really talked much about him to this point, because honestly he's, he's very young and his record is pretty thin. Um, and there's not much information out there about him yet. Um, But what we do know is he's inspired by Bernie. He says he's inspired by Bernie. He wrote something that was like pro-Bernie in college or something to that effect. And um, he had a CNN town hall last night. We're not going to look at the town hall comments, but I want to show you what he said on MSNBC prior to the town hall. Um, He made some comments on Medicare for All. Let's take a look.
4: You're for Medicare for all with a few asterisks. Um, You see this tension between democracy and capitalism, which some of us don't see or at least see that it can work out. It sounds like you're going to get defined pretty far over on the progressive spectrum.
3: Look, I think what we have to decide is are we going to keep being defined by these, where these fence posts are or are we going to do what the right very successfully did over the last 40 years and redefine them? Medicare for all is a great example. Again, you know, ACA, which was a conservative proposal, came to be caricatured as left wing by a very disciplined right wing message machine, right? What is Medicare for all? It's a compromise. I mean, in the UK you got national health care. That would be the left-wing, the true left-wing position. The true right-wing position is free-for-all, all corporate. And the compromise position is a single-payer system where you have private doctors but a public payer. Uh, we've got to stop allowing the right to move the end of the goalposts and characterize the
0: Yeah, he pretty much nailed it. Now, uh, yesterday at the CNN town hall... He kind of shot himself in the foot a little bit. I was watching it live, and I heard him talking about Medicare for All, and it sounded like he was for it. But then after the fact, people on Twitter pointed out to me, no, he actually said he's for a Medicare for All buy it, which is a public option, which is not Medicare for All. So it's a shame because he took all these great arguments, and he took all this momentum and some solid points he was making, and he just decided to throw it off a cliff by saying, oh me, no, I want Medicare for All buy it. So in other words, He's using the weasel words, which means if you're using the weasel words at this point, you're negotiating against yourself, which means you're not going to actually fight for Medicare for all, which means you won't get it implemented. We need somebody who's like a crusader and who says, no, this is what we're getting. End of conversation. So that's why Bernie's obviously the way to go. But um, as far as these comments go here, what he said here, this is an argument that we've been making on this show for a long time now, which is the Overton window has been shifted so far to the right, and corporate Democrats have allowed it to be shifted so far to the right because they've decided, yes, our left-wing position is going to be Romney Care basically. It's going to be an individual mandate system, Obamacare, which keeps the for-profit private health insurance companies in control and uh, is not, by any stretch of the imagination, left-wing. In fact, the Heritage Foundation came up with the plan, which is a right-wing think tank, and people like Newt Gingrich and Chuck Grassley supported this in the 1990s. And now, all of a sudden, all the Republicans hate it because the Democrat proposed their idea. So what he's talking about is, in, in a world that made sense, the compromise position is a Medicare-for-all system where we have private doctors and public funding, whereas the true left-wing position be, is a UK-style system where you have um, you know, public funding, so tax money, funding public institutions and public doctors. So everything's government-employed and everything is the government, whereas with a French-style single-payer system, it's private providers but tax money that funds it uh so public funds so he's talking about the mid position the the compromise position is okay you know what fine you don't want to have a fully nationalized healthcare care system gotcha even though the uk is ranked number one in the world according to some studies and they have the best system and it's just way better than ours fine you want to you want to have a compromise position we'll let everything be private in terms of providers but it's public funding and that's the point he's making. He's like, if you drag the Overton window in the spectrum of debate, that, uh, of debate that makes sense back to a reasonable position, that's the conversation we'd be having. But instead we live in this oligarchy slash corporatocracy, and just everything is geared towards defending the status quo and pumping up the for-profit uh, health insurance companies, and the people are not considered. So, that's a great point he made. Other Democrats should be making it, and We should be having this conversation about dragging the Overton window back to a position that makes sense. Okay. Janine Pirro, who is an absolute lunatic. So Janine Pirro is a Fox News host, and she went after Ilhan Omar in an insanely stupid and unhinged rant. Take a look.
8: She is clear and pointed in her hatred, her comments only critical of Jews and Israel. Not Italy, not Morocco, not North Korea, Israel. Now, the fact that you didn't have the backbone grit or gumption to draft a resolution that included her name tells me you're the stupid one. And if you don't understand, let me explain. Omar got you and all your pals to draft a watered-down resolution with a message we all learned in first grade. Don't hate anybody. Really? Really? That took you bozos a week in the House? And yet you were so quick to admonish a white male Republican congressman accused of hate and strip him of his committee assignments. She then goes on to accuse respected members of Congress who support Israel, our strongest ally in the Middle East, of dual loyalty. What she's doing, Nancy, is starting a movement to shut down pro-Israel speech, making it politically incorrect. So when she comes up with her pro-Palestinian agenda, the pro-Israels are reticent to speak because she's already proven that the Dems will not punish her. And talk about chutzpah, she takes a victory lap And in an unrepentant and unchastised tweet, takes credit by saying, quote, Our nation is having a difficult conversation, but we believe this is great progress. But she continues her disdain and contempt for Israel, America's chief ally, ignoring how Israel has assisted us advancing our interests in the Middle East, preventing victories by radical nationalist movements, as well as assisting us in intelligence gathering. She then goes on to slam Barack Obama, saying he's just another pretty face who got away with murder, caging kids and droning people in the Middle East. But she adds he is a bit more polished. My question, why the disdain? for the government of the country that saved you and your family after you lived in a tent in Kenya for four years. Why the scorn? And as the Democrats scrambled to forgive, rationalize, and give a pass to a freshman in Congress, the joke is on you, Nancy. You've appeased rising anti-Semitism inside the Democrat Party. Let me say that again. You and the whole gang running for president in the Democratic primary in 2020 have appeased the rise of anti-Semitism in the Democrat Party. The sad part is that all this is contrary to the tenets of your party, which is so receptive to the LGBTQ community, illegal immigrants, refugees, and on and on. This is not who your party is. Your party is not anti-Israel. She is. Think about this. She's not getting this anti-Israel sentiment doctrine from the Democrat Party. So if it's not rooted in the party, where is she getting it from? Think about it. Omar wears a hijab, which according to the Quran 33, A colon 59 tells women to cover so they won't get molested. Is her adherence to this Islamic doctrine indicative of her adherence to Sharia law, which in itself is antithetical to the United States Constitution? And don't forget, Nancy, history has proven over and over, when you appease anti-Semitic sentiment, the worst happens.
0: jesus christ (laughs) as she told she's speaking about the holocaust at the end there as if ilhan omar's mild criticism of the israeli lobby is going to lead to the holocaust are you fucking kidding me i mean this is like what a sick joke these guys are hysterical morons so i mean first things first um my favorite thing about this is how quickly the far right flips on what they say their principles are. Because one of the things that they've been saying for years now is, ugh, the problem with the left is that they immediately jump to calling people they disagree with bigots. And we're against that. We're for open dialogue and free discussion, and name-calling is stupid. And so we're not for that, man. There's too many false cries of bigotry in today's day and age. And then now, in the next breath, it's, you're an anti-Semite, and you're an anti-Semite, and you're an anti-Semite, and you're an anti-Semite, and oh, my God, oh, my God, there's going to be another Holocaust because you wildly criticized AIPAC. Oh, my God, oh, my God. And then also, I love the idea, victim complex 101, there was one point there where she's, like, uh, talking about how, oh, people who are pro-Israel, they're so oppressed. Yes, people who are pro-Israel are so oppressed. Are you fucking kidding me? What a sick joke this is. Our country, you have any idea the stuff that the U.S. does for Israel? And if anybody makes a mild peep against it, ah, anti-Semite, oh my God, we're so oppressed. We're, we're so politically incorrect for being pro-Israel. Are you kidding me? The politically incorrect one who's saying true things but is looked down upon is Ilhan Omar. So um, towards the end there she says she wears a hijab so she believes in Sharia and therefore is not loyal to the U.S. Constitution. In, in a segment where she's crying about, oh, the bigotry, there's so much bigotry. Anyway, you wear hijab, and so you literally believe in Sharia, and, that, and you're not loyal to the U.S. Constitution. But now let me tell you more about how you're a bigot. That is not a bigoted argument? That, right, what I just explained to you is not a bigoted argument. She wears hijab, so therefore she believes in Sharia. By the way, you made that up. Totally made that up. Uh, And therefore she isn't loyal to the Constitution. How? How does that make sense? Constitution allows for freedom of religion. Now, I'm not a religious person. I disagree with all religions. But if somebody wants to uh, practice their religion, that's perfectly constitutional. So in the middle of crying about, oh, I'm so oppressed, and pro-Israeli people are so oppressed, and the the left are such bigots, she makes a deeply, deeply bigoted argument. So much so that Fox News had to release a statement and they were like, um, we don't agree with this. This is extreme. This is wrong. Now, are they going to do anything? Who knows? Uh, but that's what they had to release a statement on it because what she said here is so important. She's so up her own ass, Janine Pirro is, because she has no ability to like self-perceive. Like she just goes and spews every far right talking point imaginable and contradicts herself a thousand times and just overrides it with deep, deep smugness. <laughs> like, that's what it is. So, um, just just so we're clear, all these cries about, it, oh, they're trying to make it politically incorrect to support Israel. We give them $38 billion in military aid. By the way, they have free health care. We don't have free health care. Flint, uh, Michigan, doesn't even have clean water. But we have $38 billion to give Israel. And, oh, yeah, they're continuing to build their... Um, you know, illegal settlements. Any word on that, Jadim Piro? Any word on uh, what is massively against international law, massively against international law that they keep doing casually? Any word on the comments that, um, that Netanyahu made this week that Israel is a state for Jews only? Any word on that? Any word on that at all? Oh, weird. You don't have any words on that. It's almost like you're fishing for your narrative, on one side, but God forbid you ever say something accurate or true against Israel, well then, you know, you you wouldn't want to be considered an anti-Semite as well, now, would you? Um, so, just a few more points here real quick. She says, her comments are only critical of Jews in Israel, saying Ilhan only went after Jews in Israel, and that is factually wrong. And listen, it's at the point now where you can't help but just call this Lies. They're lying. Because it's been proven over and over that that is not true. Ilhan Omar has made countless statements against the government of Saudi Arabia, saying we shouldn't be giving them billions of dollars, we should boycott them. So she's not just saying, I'm only going to single out Israel and we should only boycott Israel. She said repeatedly, we should boycott Saudi Arabia. So does that make her an Islamophobe? Weird, you don't have that criticism. And you don't even say that she is in favor of boycotting other countries, when she is. Um, But... Assuming you knew that, is she an Islamophobe because she goes after Saudi Arabia? The answer is no, obviously not. So she's not an an anti-Semite because she goes after Israel. These stupid fucking games, man, that people play. I, I really want, I mean, credit to Ilhan because she's under assault and all this, and it's grotesque, but what I really want is people on the left who are willing to say what I'm saying right now. Where, when, if they get elected and they make a comment against the, the government of Israel and what they're doing, that when they're accused of being an anti-Semite, they literally laugh that point out of the room and slap it down and make all the points I'm making right now about how I'm for boycotting Saudi Arabia. Does that make me an Islamophobe? No. So how are you going to call me an anti-Semite when I want to hold the government of Israel accountable to international law? Is it anti-Semitic? Is it bigoted to make states follow international law? I scream at the U.S. all the time to follow international law because we violate it all the time. Am I an anti-American bigot? Am I an American foe? Ah! He's fucking stupid. Gotcha, you're a bigot. Gotcha, you're a bigot. Um, and um, finally, they keep making this point of, ah, uh, Ilhan Omar, first she did the all about the Benjamin tweet. Then she accused people of having dual allegiance. No, she didn't. No, she didn't. That's not true. That's a gross misreading of what she said. So, listen, a lot of this stuff, Next time somebody says to you that they think she's an anti-Semite, here's what you do. You say to them, give me a direct quote in context that you think is anti-Semitic and let's talk about it. And here's my guess of what's going to happen. They won't even have anything to say. Never mind if they did have something to say, you could obviously pick it apart and explain why it's not even close to anti-Semitic. But that's the reality. Tell people, oh, Ilhan Omar, obviously there's an anti-Semitism problem. Okay, give me the direct quote in context that's anti-Semitic and let's talk about it. Anything they bring up there is a perfectly logical explanation for it that isn't, oh, my God, she hates all Jews. Okay, so that's the frustrating thing about this is, if you'll notice, they always have to speak in vagaries because they can't say, here's the exact thing that she said that's anti-Semitic and here's why this is wrong. The one thing which is somewhat questionable is she said Israel hypnotized the world. This was back during the, uh, I think, it was the 2014 um, Gaza war, which was le- less of a war and more of just a murder fest that uh, the Israeli government and Netanyahu were carrying out. But she said, uh, you know, Israel hypnotized the world, and we need to realize that what they're doing is wrong, something of that effect. And hypnotize the world is a phrase that people go, oh my God, that's an anti-Semitic phrase. But when you look at the context of, she was saying this at a time when Israel was literally killing 80% civilians in Gaza, women and children, literally 500 children. And the UN came out and said, 80% civilian death rate, you have to stop this. Bombing hospitals, bombing schools, bombing mosques, bombing the only power plant in Gaza. That's the context of when she said that. So is there an interpretation of it that is not at all anti-Semitic? Yes! It's, oh my God, when somebody's bombing and murdering fucking children, you should say, this government is fucking duping the world into acting like they're doing nothing wrong when they are doing something wrong. So that was the closest one you could get that you could say is questionable. But all the others, all about the Benjamins. That was just calling out APAC and their nefarious influence where they buy U.S. politicians to do the bidding of Israel in the same way that the Saudi lobby buys politicians to do Saudi Arabia's influence. So it's not bigoted. It's just factual to call that out. The dual allegiance thing, she never even fucking said, but they're saying she said. So it's just beyond frustrating. And I'm tired of the – and this is why people were so mad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and many others, is that – there wasn't a robust defense of Ilhan Omar. They didn't defend her on the merits, which they should have done. Instead, what they did is they tried to do these, like, bullshit hypocrisy burns of, like, well, we call out the anti-Semitism on our side, why, doesn't the, why don't the Republicans call out the anti-Semitism on their side? Well, you just bought into the fucking premise that Ilhan Omar's an anti-Semite, and she's not! She's not! That's the problem! So, uh, we don't need to get into it any further than this, but bottom line is, Jeanine Pirro is an absolute maniac, she's wrong about everything, And she loves to hurl around accusations, bigotry, bigotry, bigotry. But God forbid she immediately says something bigoted after she claims others are being bigoted. Right over her head. Didn't even realize it because she's a dumbass. Okay. All right, let's talk about what's happening when it comes to marijuana in this country. You guys are not going to like this next story because it is heartbreaking and it is indicative of everything that's wrong with our criminal justice system. A cancer patient in Missouri named Nolan Susley was searched while bedridden with stage four pancreatic cancer, because the cops thought he may have had some marijuana. Watch.
7: Hey, rain. Rain, rain, This is what when you have stage four pancreatic cancer to all my tribe mates. Here they are. I took, I had some capsules that had some THC oil in them. I took them outside on the parking lot. You know, I can get a cold list of physicians that will tell you that what he's using. I mean, he just, his pain. These are all the this is appetite, Tim Roberts. His weight loss. This is Tim Roberts. Look, I am going to get arrested. They already told me when get arrested. If, if we find every marijuana, we would be using. Thing. Here we go, folks. If, if Stage we four. find marijuana, we'll give you a citation. We're not taking you down to the county jail. But we haven't found marijuana, so we're not citing... Well, well, I mean, why are you digging this stuff? I told you where I took it. Because we got a call. You don't, listen, you listen, you call? You don't think we're respond to calls? I, but okay. who... They I could, because so I can, can and call and one you and don't let us let us No, yeah, no, listen, let's, Let them right. look and do their job and... You ain't got anything to hide. But I want to well, know why it's a big deal if it just got if it, it is really is illegal. It's, it's illegal. <laughs> it's it's really illegal in Missouri now. T H C. Medically in Missouri, it's really legal now. They just haven't finished the paperwork. Hey, okay, well then it's still but I, don't, but I don't have time to wait for that. Man, well, what would you do? Tell me what you'd do.
1: You can't so I'm not going to mm-hmm.
7: play the one-up game. You—you never said you'd do anything to save your right. life. Do you do anything to save your life? I don't want to save Do you have five kids? Listen, listen. It's listen, kidding. listen. It's not worth the argument right now. Do your jobs, okay? We're not going to have the debate. Hush <sighs> up. Okay. It's only choice, I guess. <sighs> I, know I, mean. I know. You've been straight up with every single physician. I've told, told everyone. I've told people here in this hospital that I'm doing it. He doesn't take opioids. He doesn't take the I have to tell the doctors I'm taking it for the other medication, so...
0: That was uh, incredibly hard to watch. Um, from when we're kids, we're kind of, I don't know indoctrinated with this idea that when you see that uniform, that cop uniform, and when you see that you know like the cop car with the sirens and everything, they're like, ooh, they're official and they're here to uphold law and order. so you gotta you know, respect it, and, and you know, it's, a, it's almost like an honor in a way, like, they're doing this, this super important job, and so when they're um, going about their business, it's, you know, hey, know your place, sit back, shut the fuck up, let them do whatever they got to do, and then, you know, when it's over, it's over type thing. Well, this, I've never seen a better example than this of, like, just because you're wearing a suit and badge, dude, doesn't mean you're doing the right thing, In fact, in this case, you are, this is so insanely, deeply, deeply immoral and unjust that it's almost incomprehensible. Like, this is what the cops are doing. This is what you guys are wasting time, money, resources on. Stage four pancreatic cancer, which means, honestly, that's very, you don't have much left to live in that situation. I mean, that's really like almost worst case scenario type thing. And you're searching his stuff because he may have had marijuana or some sort of marijuana related product. Now, he's claiming it's uh, THC pills. Um, They say that people have called and said they've smelled actual marijuana. Listen, either way, I don't give a fuck what he's taking. I don't give a fuck. Without a doubt, that's helping him from the pain, they just said it, One, of the, the guy who was with them said, hey listen, he's taking it because he doesn't want to take opioids, and so the, this helps him with the pain, the THC pills help him with the pain. I mean, the fact that this is, it even got to this point is just insane, now later on in the clip, you didn't see the whole thing, it goes on for about eight minutes, there's a doctor who comes in, and the doctor's talking to the police officers, and like trying to figure out what the hell's going on, and basically says to them, like, do you have a, a warrant to look through his stuff? And they're like, no, but we're allowed to look through these things. And there's one bag that he wouldn't let them look through, which honestly tells me that he probably does have, um, you know, whatever, maybe actual marijuana, like, smokable marijuana in there. But, I don't, again, I don't, see a, I don't think anything's wrong with that. But he's, he basically says, like, no, I'm not going to let you search this one bag. And then they're still standing there like they want to search it. Listen, in all seriousness, they do not have the right to search that without his permission. So they do need a warrant. They don't just, I know we we were told that maybe you have it, maybe you don't, so we're going to search. No, he needs to okay you searching his property. You know, we still have a constitution in this country. We still have Fourth Amendment rights in this country, protection from unreasonable search and seizure. So you want to look through it? Get a warrant. But if you see, that's the reason why process is so important, because if they go to a, a judge, how do you think a judge is going to react when he hears stage four pancreatic cancer patient may have marijuana in his bag. Can we please have a fucking warrant to search through his bag? Most judges, even if they're conservative, are going to go, no, you can't. Stop. Go away. Do something else. So, but listen, overall, the main point is this. Legalize, tax, and regulate it at a federal level. We cannot have situations like this anymore. How many hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, have had their lives ruined because of selling marijuana or having marijuana and getting caught and then it just being locked up and then they can't get a job when they get out? There are some people who are in prison for life for nonviolent drug offenses. Obama was pardoning them at the end of his time in office. Uh, there are still people in prison now for nonviolent drug offenses. They're serving a life. Our system is fundamentally broken. We are jailing more people than the rest of the world. And now you see the insanity, the the level of insanity we've reached where somebody with stage 4 pancreatic cancer who's using this for pain is basically looked at like a fucking criminal. No, the real criminals in this instance are the cops. The real criminals are the people who are backing this fundamentally unjust system. Nobody with a fucking brain in their head is going to look at this and go, yeah, I'm with the cops on this one. Are you fucking kidding me? You know what I want the cops to do? Go stop the murders. Go stop, uh, you know, the the robberies. Go stop the rapes and the assaults. Go do that. Are you fucking kidding me? You're going after this poor guy with cancer who's using it for pain treatment. Even if he wasn't, by the way. Even if he wasn't using it for pain treatment. I I don't know, I just like to have marijuana because it changes my consciousness slightly, and I enjoy it. By all means, go right ahead. What the fuck is wrong with that? not hurting anybody else, and he's making his life better, more enjoyable. the fuck? Unacceptable, man. Unacceptable. This is disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. Shame on these Missouri police officers. I get it. Oh, they're just doing their job, but people call it. You know what you do? Somebody calls and says, I smell marijuana. I'm coming from this guy's room. You know what you say? Ma'am, we'd love to help, but uh, we'll call the, you know, whatever. We'll call the doctors and tell them that they smell it, and somebody smells it, maybe they'll do something about it, maybe they won't. But this isn't a job for law enforcement. Um, you know, there's stage 4 pancreatic cancer patient in that room, and this isn't our place. Say something like that, dude. Say something like that. I mean, don't get me wrong, the person who called up is just as big of a fucking asshole as the cops are in this instance. But, you know, use your fucking discretion. Holy shit, use your discretion. I mean, really? That's what you're going to do? Stage 4 pancreatic cancer patient. Searching a bag for marijuana. If the cops were no longer allowed to do this, were no longer allowed to pester people over drugs, their approval rating would shoot through the roof. Because then people would actually view them as like, oh, what do you mean? These are the people who stopped the murders. Great. But now they're viewed as like, you know, the, the weird, almost like religious morality police in a way. This is the same kind of shit you see in like Iran where it's like you're, you're going to like enforce a dress code or something. like That's how stupid this is. It's on that level. So anyway, I hope this guy gets better, and I hope that uh, the cops never do this again, and I hope we legalize, tax, and regulate marijuana at a federal level and never have to deal with garbage like this. Okay, Donald Trump is next on the chopping block. So this next story really highlights the state of the Trump administration, take a look. 64% of American voters believe President Trump committed crimes Before he became president, while just 24% believe he did not. Wow. According to a Quinnipiac poll released Tuesday, voters are more divided on the question of whether or not Trump committed crimes during his presidency, with 45% of respondents saying yes and 43% saying no. Of those surveyed, 50% said they believe Michael Cohen, who detailed alleged crimes committed by Trump during his testimony last week, more than they believe the president As he enters the third year of his presidency, 65% of Americans say Trump is not honest, including 25% of Republicans. Quote, his worst grade ever on that character trait, according to Quinnipiac. Damn, even a quarter of Republicans think their president is a liar, which is hilarious when you look at another fact, which is that Donald Trump has the highest approval rating within his own party than any president ever. So what that means is red meat to the base is being it's happening all day long so the base is like geez, we love this guy and even though 25 percent of them say he's a liar he has the highest approval rating within his own party compared to any president so he's like the quintessential republican president he's like the fox news president in fact speaking of that just the other day he finally stumbled across one america news network which is a, a network that prides itself on being to the right of fox news they say fox news is too liberal so we are to the right of fox news trump finally found that station and he was tweeting about it and giving the host credit because the host was blowing him or whatever um but wow man these numbers are really crazy 64% of americans say of course he was a criminal before he became president uh, that's insanity you can probably no other president that had that like number Ugh. <laughs> uh. By the way, is that true? You bet your ass that's true, dude. Absolutely. I mean, we've covered it on this show how there's evidence of money laundering that was happening at his Panama Hotel. There's evidence of connections with the mafia. There's evidence of um, insurance fraud and tax evasion and all these. I mean, he was cheating on his taxes in the sense that he, uh, he would undervalue his assets when it came to tax time. And then he would overvalue his assets when he was bragging to, like, Forbes or some of these magazines about, I'm worth this much money. He would say his his property was worth, like, ten times more than what he just said to the government to pay lower taxes. So he's just, like, in so many ways, he was just like a casual criminal. Like, he didn't think twice about it. He's just like, yeah, I'm just going to be a criminal. (laughs) So, and this is why I told you guys a thousand times. I'm convinced that the day Trump is no longer president, he'll be indicted because there's just too many financial crimes he's done, and he's going to get caught. Um, Now, but the flip side of that is I don't think he'll be impeached as president. And they're definitely not going to prove, like, collusion or treason or whatever the fuck they're trying to get him on through the Mueller report in terms of collusion with Russia. So I don't think they are going to get that, but when he's no longer president, I think he's going to get indicted. And it seems to me like Americans probably agree with that. 64% say he was a criminal before he became president. And uh, the interesting one is it's still 45% say yes, criminal, even while he's president, 43% say no. Um, That one, it depends exactly what you mean, because has he violated the Constitution? Yes. In the sense of violating the Emoluments Clause left and right. Been doing it left and right. You know, taking money, hundreds of thousands of dollars from Saudi Arabia, and then uh, giving them a giant weapons deal because he was given that personal money. And there's just endless examples of that, and people around him in his administration, Definitely committing crimes in that respect. Also, it's unconstitutional to do these illegal offensive wars. I mean, we're still in Syria. That's unconstitutional. So there's that as well. So there's a a bunch of different things you could point to, but probably nothing that they'll actually take action on in terms of impeachment. But either way, everybody's on to him, man. Everybody's like, okay, we've seen enough of you to know that you're a sleazy-ass character. And boy, is that true, if not just obvious. All right, next uh, is the BDS story, which is actually super important, and I think you guys will like. Vice News did a great job with this piece. This is a long clip, but it's worth it. So Vice News did a great piece on the anti-free speech BDS laws popping up all around the country. This one is in Arkansas. Watch.
9: BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanction. It's a consumer boycott of Israeli-made products. It's designed to punish the country for its treatment of Palestinians. Israel calls the campaign anti-Semitic. So far, 26 states have passed anti-BDS laws, which force anyone who does business with the government to pledge not to participate in the movement. One of them is Arkansas. Alan Leverage founded the Arkansas Times 45 years ago. It's been my life's work. I decided when
3: I was 22 I wanted to devote my life to Arkansas. I wanted to make Arkansas
9: a better place to live. The Times is Arkansas's left-leaning magazine. It's free. The publication survives on ad revenue. But this revenue stream is being threatened by a 2017 law that says state contractors have to sign a loyalty pledge to Israel. Could you explain to me from the beginning
3: so uh, how that happened? One of our biggest advertisers and oldest advertisers is uh, uh, University of Arkansas, uh, Plasky Technical College, and so in November, the marketing people who we've worked with for years said, you know, this, the purchasing director is requiring us to get you to sign this, and yeah, at first I just sort of lost it, and uh, but this time it just kept coming,
9: and finally I said, well, there's not going to be a signed pledge. You're buying a binder. The college year. buys ads in his paper with state money to make a yeah. leverage the state contract. Yeah. You refused to sign it? Yeah. And what did that cost you? Well, so far about
3: $15,000, and uh, it could get worse. Y'all yeah, all should tell Alan uh, that you think this the printing job looks like shit. Uh, We've been running a break-even proposition, and sometimes not even a break-even proposition, from, from some
9: years. So fifteen
3: thousand dollars is that somebody's job.
9: Despite the cost, Arkansas Times employees support his decision to fight the law. Just simply to stifle the sin, and that's un-American and we think unconstitutional. If you were to combine all of the revenue that you made from contracts with the state how much would you stand to lose if not ten percent ten percent It's a lot of money so even though the paper doesn't participate in bds it and the aclu sued the state over the law you say it's unconstitutional why well because it's a violation of
3: freedom of speech so we're going to let the state whether it's the federal state or the state of arkansas influence a political position of a newspaper
9: in, reti- in return for money. Okay, is that, is that a good idea? It's hard to trace the origin of these anti-BDS laws, but they seem to be the result of coordination between lobby groups, some lawyers, and pro-Israel legislators like Bart Heston, state Senate majority leader, lifelong Republican, and dedicated Christian. He sponsored the Arkansas bill. There are other states that have sponsored bills like this, and they're strikingly similar, almost word for word, like Texas, Louisiana, and I'm wondering, basically, who's behind authoring these
10: bills? No one came and pursued me to author this bill, but whenever you decide you're going to do it, you start researching what other states are doing, if it's working, and you always... Uh, I like to check with groups like AIPAC see what their thoughts are and if they've got any uh, what we call template legislation that seems to be working for them.
1: AIPAC, the American
9: Israeli Public Affairs Committee, is a powerful lobbying group that pushes pro-Israel policies in U.S. politics. Did your Christian faith have an influence on the
10: authorship of this bill or the sponsorship of this bill? Yeah, I I think it absolutely did. Again, I hope that my Christian faith uh, influences everything in my life. Uh, and I'm a believer in the Bible, so I absolutely believe the Jewish people are God's chosen people, and therefore I have a responsibility to benefit them where, where possible. Foreign policy is largely the purview of the federal government. Why do you feel the need to enact legislation on the state level? It's more than just uh, the boundaries in the land in Israel, right? I believe that it expands to the Jewish people. You know, when we see on a federal level, uh, where they, when they're going to sanction uh, Iran, Uh, They they have the right to do that as a country. I think as a state, we we felt like we had the right to to make a statement as well. Well, you're not sanctioning another country. You're sanctioning your own citizens. Right, Uh, we are. We're we're sending a message that says, hey, we we are not going to stand by in Arkansas and let people take our taxpayer money against something that our overwhelmingly amount of our taxpayers don't believe in. You can choose to boycott Israel and, and be in Arkansas. We're not taking away your First Amendment freedom of expression at all. Just we're not going to do business with you at that point.
9: If Hester wanted to talk to Arkansans about supporting Israel, he wouldn't have had to go far. The leader of Little Rock's Jewish community opposes BDS, but he's also against the legislation. I am the
4: rabbi of the largest Jewish congregation in Arkansas by a long shot. And i never heard from Senator Hester about this law and whether I thought that it was in the best interest of the Jewish people of Arkansas. This law has nothing to do with the Jewish people of Arkansas. I'm a vigorous opponent of BDS, and we, the American Jewish community, and Israel supporters here in the United States, are successfully winning the battle against BDS. What we don't need is the power of the state to help us fight this battle I'm grateful to the Arkansas Times for bringing the case I think they're a great plaintiff Because they don't engage In any boycott of Israel And they're being forced to sign Something that frankly A newspaper shouldn't be asked to sign What this does is It gives the state
9: a certain amount of control Over the free press Okay, alright, thank you Donnie right. uh-huh. Bye bye The Times has now gone four months Without one of its biggest advertisers in January, a federal judge threw out the Times' lawsuit, saying boycotts aren't protected by the First Amendment. The paper is appealing. <laughs> They're saying you have the freedom. You don't have to sign it. Yeah, we just but don't. They, but yeah. if, you, if if you choose not to sign it, you just can't do business with us. Yeah, well, all I'll tell you what. I'm a citizen. Okay,
3: I pay taxes in this state, and I and I this is my home. And no, they do not have a right to punish me for exercising my constitutional right to be silent. In this, in this instance, it's just to be silent. We don't take a position on this. Our job is to write about Arkansas. We're a lot more interested in Medicaid expansion here in Arkansas than we are what's going on in Jerusalem.
9: Is there a tipping point where you recognize if you don't sign these pro-Israel pledges that your publication is going to sink? Could be.
0: i mean this it's incredible what we're watching is absolutely incredible this is the clearest violation of freedom of speech i've ever seen in my life for the record kansas and arizona already have had court cases where the courts have said you can't create laws targeting specific speech political speech and that's what this is so there are over 20 states that have anti-bds laws but in the two states where it's gone to court so far, they've said, this is nuts. This is the clearest violation of the First Amendment we've ever seen. So, I mean, this isn't much of an open question. Obviously, the court in Arkansas uh, disagrees at this point. But my guess is the higher up it goes, the more you're going to get the conclusion that we already know is coming, which is this is an obvious crackdown on, on freedom of speech. So just to get it out out of the way here. Here's the real threat to freedom of speech. So for all the, you know, idiot Democrats who are like, oh my God, Donald Trump is tweeting mean stuff about CNN or tweeting insults at Chuck Todd, what a threat to free speech this is. No, that's not a threat to free speech. This is the threat to free speech right here. This is. And for all the the right-wing pundits who are obsessed with the social justice warriors on college campus, um, here's a... Putting aside the principle of freedom of speech, which is important, and I agree with and will fight for it massively, but putting that aside, here's a threat to the actual legality of it. So not just the principle at play here, there's also a legal threat to free speech, like an actual threat to the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So, I mean, I'd love to hear wall-to-wall screaming about this, but unfortunately it's not going to get as much coverage as some pink-haired social justice warrior would, and it's fucking devastating, and it's obnoxious, and it's annoying as fuck. But this, I mean, it's so important here, so... You heard one of the, the legislators said, yeah, I look at AIPAC and what, what template legislation they have. Wow, Ilhan Omar was so wrong when she said it's all about the Benjamins and APAC makes uh, U.S. politicians do the bidding of Israel. That was the most accurate statement ever made in the history of U.S. politics. And every reaction to what she said has further proved it, and this segment proves it. They're admitting it. Yeah, I go to APAC and they have a fucking template that I use because AIPAC is a supporter of me, so I'm going to support them, and what they want is for us to ban, um, you know, free expression in this country. If you support, and here's the main argument: if you support um, BDS, or in this case, if you take no position on BDS, well, you're not signing a pledge which says I will not support it. So therefore, we're not going to do business with you. But here's the problem with that: this isn't just business. Business, you two, you know, private entities who are uh, deciding to do something. We're talking about the government here. We're talking about the government. So the government is all of us. The government is our, the public. The government is our tax dollars. In this case, it's the state of Arkansas. And for the state of Arkansas to say, we disagree with a, you know, a political position you may or may not take, therefore, we're not going to, you know, there will be no more money coming to you. Well, you're targeting, targeting him and his paper specifically for speech. And that's a government targeting for speech which is unconstitutional, which is exactly what Kansas and Arizona have already said, and what higher courts will rule in this case as well. But isn't it crazy? You are allowed. So if this guy decided, I'm going to write an article that says, the United States. I'm boycotting the United States of America over our war in Iraq, which killed minimum 200,000 civilians, and it's going to cost $7 trillion, and it was the worst disaster of the modern era. It was a, it was a war crime was illegal. If he says that, the state of Arkansas doesn't say, we're not going to give you any funds. But if he says, I support BDS, and I think we should boycott Israel to force a peace deal with the Palestinians so Palestinians get human rights. If he says that, then they cut off the money. Think about that. You can criticize your own country, but you can't criticize a foreign country. That's our ally. Do we all realize how mental that is? So you have free speech unless you criticize one of our allies, in which case we're going to take away your free speech. Do you realize how insane that is? So the threat to freedom of speech in this case is coming from one of our allies, from an allied government of ours. You want to talk about undermining our way of life? No, no, no. We have free speech in this country, bitch you imagine if Saudi Arabia was like, we want you to pass anti-Saudi boycott laws so people aren't allowed to speak up against Saudi Arabia? Everybody would be like, whoa, what the fuck? Fuck you. We get to say whatever we want, asshole. But Israel doesn't. We're all, what, what, something happened? I don't know. Are we trying to shut down papers because they might voice mild, tepid criticism of a foreign government? What, what, what? Everybody should be screaming from the rooftops about this, man. This is a direct assault on our freedom, our liberty, on justice, on the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And it's the realest threat I've seen in a long time. There's nothing funnier to me than this next story. The Daily Beast says, They call it maga Feeling attacked in public spaces, Trump supporters have created a green book guide that lists establishments that are safe for them to patronize. You know, nothing defines the modern far right more than playing the victim as they accuse the left of playing the victim. That's like the, in a nutshell, that's the modern far right. Everything they, it's all projection. Everything they're accusing the left of being, they embody it. Magaphobia? Magaphobia. Uh, Now listen, can you point to a few examples of, oh, somebody was wearing a fucking MAGA hat, and somebody knocked it off their head and threw soda on them or some shit? I'm sure you can. You absolutely can. But without a doubt, it's no more than people who've been attacked for being fucking, you know, whatever. Bernie Sanders lefties who are smeared and called socialists and supporters of Venezuela. And, you know, it's no more than, certainly no more than what people, the shit people get in this country because they're Jewish or because they're Muslim or because they're atheist. So it's just, it's the hyper focus on their own in-group. And it's classic tribalism you assume your in-group is the most under attack and all these other groups are, you know, they're the oppressors and we're the oppressed and, oh, my God, don't we need a safe space because we're a bunch of snowflakes and you can come in here and wear your MAGA hat and everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. You have a safe place where you can shit on immigrants all day. Mm -hmm. Just shut the fuck up, man. Who cares? I'm so sick of the fucking... Like, I try my best to talk about policy on this show as much as possible. And we have fun, too. You know, we fuck around. We give candidates nicknames and stuff. But <laughs> this is this is an instance of, like, you think these guys really give a fuck about anything serious? No, they're playing tribalist games and they're partisan hacks. And, you know, my team is good and their team is bad. Megaphobia, you don't accept us. Have you ever seen those message boards online? of, like, you know, uber-hardcore Trump supporters telling sad stories about, like, I'm now separated from my family because they don't like my politics. (laughs) It's just these endless sad stories about, like, people didn't like that I was talking about Trump all the time and calling him awesome, and now they don't really want to hang out with me anymore. Uh, (laughs) uh, Well, now they have their safe space. You can you can be safe from the MAGA By the way, like fucking forty percent of the country, like forty percent, is head over heels in love with Donald Trump. Okay, the lowest number possible is like twenty eight percent, maybe. Okay, so anywhere from twenty eight percent to forty percent are like fucking yeah, Trump rock on. The idea that that's like this minority group. I mean, admitted it, it literally is because it's not the majority of the country. But it's such a giant block of the country, and they run fucking everything, that it's like, uh, why are you bitching, man? Shit. You have the fucking Senate. You have the presidency. You're getting executive orders you want passed every single goddamn day. You know? You've actually won the shit-posting war online. You really have. The MAGA people have. They've won the shit-posting war, okay? But still, after all that, <laughs> megaphobia, I need a safe space, <laughs> mean liberals. <laughs> Fucking whiny bitches. Nobody cares. Shut the fuck up, man. Jesus Christ. Talk about some serious shit. Actually, you know what? Don't. Because what you guys think are serious things are not necessarily serious things, like the Islamic takeover of America or whatever garbage you're focusing on today. Um, anyway. Jesus Christ. Magophobia. That's now a thing that exists, and you just heard about it. Okay. All right. Final story of the day. Um, This is a very uplifting one. I'm happy that we're ending on this positive note. So we have a really interesting breakthrough in depression treatment. Take a look at this. A mind-altering medication related to the club drug Special K won U.S. approval Tuesday for patients with hard-to-treat depression, the first in a series of long-overlooked substances being reconsidered for severe forms of mental illness. The nasal spray from Johnson & Johnson is a chemical cousin of ketamine which has been used for decades as a powerful anesthetic to prepare patients for surgery. In the 1990s, the medication was adopted as a party drug by the underground rave culture due to its ability to produce psychedelic out-of-body experiences. More recently, some doctors have given ketamine to people with depression without formal FDA approval. The Food and Drug Administration approved Spravato, a <laughs> fascinating name, as a fast-acting treatment for patients who have failed to find relief with at least two antidepressants. Up to 7.4 million Americans suffer from so-called treatment-resistant depression, which heightens the risk of suicide, hospitalization, and other serious harm, according to the FDA. The drug will cost between $590 and $885, depending on the dosage and before various insurance discounts and rebates. So I remember a long time ago, there was on Joe Rogan's podcast, he had... um, I'm going to blank on his name. Shit. The white dude who did Chappelle show with Dave Chappelle. Okay, I'm forgetting his name, and I apologize for that. But he was the white dude who did Chappelle show with Dave, Dave Chappelle. And um, that dude had treatment-resistant depression. And this was back before the FDA approved it, but he was doing this off-label treatment with ketamine. And um, he says, hey, listen, this just totally cured me. Totally cured me. Now, further on in the article, they explain how one woman was talking about her experience with it. Every two weeks, she goes and she gets the ketamine treatment. It lasts her for a full two weeks. Then she goes back and gets ketamine treatment again. And uh, now I guess they're approving it in a slightly different way with a spray, I guess, so you can do it yourself. Um, but finally, we're at the point now where it was considered taboo forever. Like, you can't use psychedelic drugs for treatment. There's this giant taboo after the hippie era where the U.S. government was massively conservative and they just shut it all down. And they're like, no, we're not going to look into this stuff. It's bad, it's wrong, it's terrible, it's making our kids dance and want to have sex and they're out there and fucking listening to hippie music and not cool, shut it all down. So they didn't even look into it for research reasons. And now we're finally getting to a point where people are being more open-minded about this and the government is slowly but surely inching in the right direction and they're allowing studies on this stuff. And what we're finding out is, holy shit, maybe those hippies were onto something with their substances. Maybe it's not just like they're taking it to drop out of society, but they're actually having enlightenment experiences in a way, and they're freeing their minds, and they're becoming happier, more fulfilled, well-rounded people by going through this stuff and taking this stuff. And now we're learning, when you actually put it under a clinical setting and you study it, yeah, there's massive benefits of taking this stuff, which, by the way, is why people fucking took it. It's not like uh, they were all taking it and all having shitty experiences, and but people just kept taking it. No! People took it because they saw some fucking benefit in it. Now, granted, the people who were taking it had full beards and fucking scruffy hair and hadn't showered in five days, but <laughs> there was still some wisdom in taking it. So, And I'm talking specifically in this case about, you know, whatever, MDMA, which there's studies on now as well, and psilocybin mushrooms, magic mushrooms, which there studies on now as well. And studies are showing that for those drugs like... If when people are in, in hospice and they're about to die and they're like, whoa, this is crazy, and they're massively depressed because they're about to die, it makes perfect sense. You would be depressed in that scenario. They're given these substances and it's a breakthrough experience for them where all of a sudden they, feel, they don't feel bad. And I don't know why that is. You have to talk to them. Maybe some of them say it makes me feel like there's possibilities beyond this life that I wasn't aware of and I was closed off to and yada yada. But either way, it's helping people. It is tangibly helping people. In the case of Special K, it's hilarious because my understanding was that it was a fucking cat tranquilizer, and then people started taking it as a party drug, and i come to find out, holy shit, it's actually helping people with treatment-resistant depression. Damn, son. treatment resist. And, and the other awesome part about this is, to this point, anti-depression treatment has been in the form of SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And SSRIs uh, basically, you know, the layman's explanation of it is, it floods your brain with happiness, the happiness chemical serotonin, and makes it so that, you know, you have more happiness chemicals in your mind, therefore leading to you being happier. That's that's the idea behind it. And SSRIs work with some people, don't work with other people, and there's different kinds of them. Some SSRIs are more upper-like, so you're bouncing off the walls and you want to be active all the time. Other SSRIs are big-time downers, and you'll be calmer, but you'll be happier. Other SSRIs, some people blow up like a fucking balloon, and they get much fatter because, for whatever reason, the SSRIs make them eat a shitload more, and, you know, they're happier, but they also get really fat. And so, but we've been stuck in that mode, which is 1980s mode, which is like, this is what we use for depression, and that's it. And there's mixed results with that. Well, what we're looking at here is the way this drug functions is nothing like the SSRIs. It doesn't target serotonin. It, it does something else in the brain, which I cannot speak on because I'm a dumbass and I don't know even the layman's explanation of this thing. But it does something else in the brain, which is totally different, not related to SSR, to, to serotonin. And the reaction has been wonderful so far. So it, it's really fascinating that we've evolved to this point. And my guess is the more we go forward, the more we'll evolve further. And we will come up with even... Newer treatment for depression and for other psychological issues. And explore it all, man. My, my position is explore it all. No taboos, nothing held sacred. Let's figure it out. Let's figure out what works the best. Let's figure out how we can allow people to live happy, healthy lives. And, um, you know, having to have some medicine every now and then is a small price to pay if it means happiness. And, you know, it's kind of fashionable these days for people to act like, like, oh no, you know, like fucking, pep up. Like, why don't, why aren't, why don't you just get happier? <laughs> like, that's something people have actually said to depress people. Like, just be happier, <laughs> as if they're not trying, as if it's not like, like they wake up every day, like, oh, I got to put more effort in.
8: No asshole,
0: they fucking know that, you know. Or the other thing is. And in some cases it works. I'm not shitting on it all the time. Sometimes when people eat healthier and they work out, their mood will naturally lift. I'm sure that's true for some people. But then there's also clinical depression, where it doesn't matter how clean you eat and how hard you work out, you're still going to be like, I feel like shit. So for those people, yeah, the idea of just having to take some medicine and that massively improves your quality of life, there's no problem with that whatsoever. And have a weird, like, principled objection to taking medicine... It just strikes me as dumb as, like, I'm not going to take medicine to deal with this infection. It's like, but why? That'll help. Yeah, but I'm going to fucking all natural, baby. What the fuck does that mean? Why? That's just dumb in this instance. So, you know, hopefully we get to a point in society where the stigma breaks down about mental health issues and people just get the treatment they need. And, um, yeah, you can live happier, healthier lives um, by using the right medicine and by, you know, helping yourself. There's nothing wrong with helping yourself. So anyway, really interesting news. Special K, party drug, but also anti-depression treatment now. And it's approved, which is a giant step in the right direction. All right. That'll do it, y'all. Love you. What day is today? Today, well, let me take a look. I think it's Monday, right? Is it Monday? Yeah, it's Monday. We should have, um, whatchamacallit, should have uh, Kylan Corrin tomorrow. But anyway, love you guys. Talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Peace.